This is The Guardian. Today, Britain is sweltering with record temperatures. How can we adapt to a future where heat waves become more common? What do you normally do when it gets hot in the UK? Maybe pop down to the park, break open a pack of ice lollies, play a bit of frisbee, or just go to the beach and bask in it. And so they come to a beach which is far from lonely now, to find a place in the sun, to stretch their legs and doze in a sweltering paradise where the office and the washing up have forgotten things and sandcastles come out just right. At the moment, I guess you're thinking differently because in some parts of the country today, it's set to get over 40 degrees Celsius. So hot that the government has put out a red warning. The extreme heat we're forecasting right now is absolutely unprecedented. We've seen when climate change has driven such unprecedented severe weather events all around the world. It's clear that the UK isn't built for this kind of heat. Our homes don't tend to be air-conditioned. Our offices might be, but seeing as train tracks are buckling in this weather, lots of us can't even get to work. Our towns and cities don't have enough shade, and so we'll just have to struggle through it. Year on year, the temperatures are going to go up. And you can already see the devastating effects that the climate crisis is having across Europe and beyond. Wildfires is scorching parts of Europe with firefighters battling blazes in Portugal, Spain, France and Croatia. Authorities are linking an unusual heat wave to climate change. A mass hot and dry air blown in by African winds is Faced with this reality, governments, urban planners and architects are having to find ways to adapt the places in which we live and work. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, how can we rebuild our cities to cope with heat waves? Damien Carrington, you're The Guardian's environment editor. A lot of people are going to be listening to this in the UK in what feels like a sweltering temperature. Why is it that the UK has been so hot in recent days? In terms of the meteorology, there's been a couple of different things going on. One is that there's a a weather system called the uh, Azores High, which is a big area of high pressure centred around the Azores Islands, um, unsurprisingly, um, off Africa. Um, But that can expand um, its uh, size. So then what happened is that uh, the southerly winds got stronger and uh, that started bringing uh, really hot air from North Africa and the Sahara in places across the Mediterranean, um, right through Uh, Europe and up to the UK, and that's what's led to these really, really hot temperatures. The situation already feels pretty dramatic here in the UK, but I know that across parts of Europe, it's been even hotter. Can you give me a sense of what's been going on over the past few weeks? 
The hot temperatures have arrived much earlier this year in uh, June than than we've been used to in the past. And um, in particular, Spain and Portugal and France have uh, really been suffering. Europe is sweltering under one of its earliest and hottest heat waves on record. Scientists say climate change is driving unseasonably high temperature. They've had you know, lots and lots of uh, uh, days over 40 degrees C and uh, I'm sure lots of our listeners will have uh, perhaps been in places where it hits 40 once or twice but um, you know maybe you've been on holiday and you think okay it's you know I'll go and cool off in the pool or something but you know if you're trying to live and work and go to school and you know be treated in hospital when it's like that day after day and at night it's not cooling below you know 25 degrees and you can't sleep properly it's um, it gets really problematic. And that is a really good point. It feels very different when you're on holiday. It feels, you know, like a luxury to go on holiday and maybe experience some heat. But as you say, if you're trying to work and actually live your life properly, you can't just pop down to the pool. No, exactly. I think that's one of the things that's been a bit tricky, I think, in... uh recent years because you know the newspapers and other media would greet a, a spell of hot weather with delight you know, barely a wisp of cloud in the sky glorious temperatures a lovely cooling breeze and i'm clearly not the only one to think it because this place is getting busier by the pictures minute. of ice creams and people on the beach and everyone having a great time and barbecues in the back garden and so on but you know as the climate crisis is really starting to hit and we're starting to understand how deadly these uh, heat waves can be We're having to take it a lot more seriously, I think, um, because it's getting rapidly worse and uh, the future, unless uh, there's really strong action on carbon emissions, is is going to get a whole bunch worse. And I wonder, how do we compare as a country to other places in Europe? You know, as this heatwave has been spreading across the continent, what kinds of effects has it been having? Travel can be affected, tarmac starts to melt. We've had reports of rail lines buckling in the heat. That can certainly be uh, problematic, certainly for anyone who's uh, trying to work outside, you know, whether that's in construction or in agriculture. They, they basically can't, I think, at uh, times like this. And, of course, there's been wildfires. A fire blazes in the tinder-dry forests north of Lisbon. Emergency services have been battling to keep control as a brutal heat wave engulfs the country. In Portugal, they declared an eight-day state of alert um, fairly recently because of that risk of uh, wildfires. And we've seen over the previous few years how um, extraordinary and terrifying they can be from all the way from the Iberian Peninsula across to Greece. There's also been a really worrying drought in uh, northern Italy. These cracked pieces of dried land used to be covered with water. The Po River banks here in Boreto have seen only a few drops of water in summer months. The so these heat waves invade on every aspect of life. I've been reading reports about that drought and something people are obviously concerned about is how it will affect food production and food prices. And it just demonstrates what's happening there at the moment, how heat waves impact everyone in a society. So let's look at the science. Why do heat waves happen at all? It's a good question. And uh, what happens both with heat waves and actually all sorts of extreme weather is um, it's basically the weather getting stuck. And what that means is that uh, the heat builds up day on day. And that's why you get to these really crazy temperatures, because you're building up the heat all, all day. The days are really long, so there's lots of sunlight. The nights are short, so you don't have uh, 
much time to cool off and uh, the high pressure actually that comes with these also presses the air down onto the surface of the earth which also leads to the heat and climate scientists are starting to explore how climate change is, is increasing these uh, sometimes they call them blocking patterns when weather gets stuck. And a lot of people in the UK are finding the temperature here and the humidity uncomfortable but the Met Office has also warned that it could be dangerous why is that? What are the dangers? Heat waves are really serious threats to health. And of course, the most serious is uh, death. And we know that in 2020, in the UK alone, more than two and a half thousand people died because of these hot days. And that's actually a less hot year than we're anticipating this year. Um, the most uh, at risk people are the elderly and also young children. And that's because they have a poorer ability to regulate their temperature through sweating. But there are lots of other things. Of course, you can get heat stroke, which is, can be very serious dehydration. There are other things like mental health uh, can be affected. We know that there is a, a small bit significant link between suicides, unfortunately, and uh, extremely hot weather. Uh, and they found, you know, somewhere between a one and two percent rise in the rate of those um, self-harms uh, when the average monthly temperature went up by just one degree centigrade. Which is significant and something for world leaders to think about when they're setting climate policy. To what extent can we be certain that this extreme heat is being caused by the climate crisis? Until uh, very recently, people used to think that, oh, there's natural variation in the weather. How do we know what the impact of the climate crisis is on any particular event? But that's really changed in the last uh, couple of years. And um, I was just talking to a scientist the other day about this. And uh, she was saying, like, now we know that every heat wave that we experience has been made either more intense or more likely to happen because of the emissions that humanity has been you know, pumping to, into the atmosphere over the past few decades. So... That's very clear. Every heat wave uh, is being exacerbated by the climate crisis. And in some cases, it's really extreme. So some of the listeners might well remember that last year in the Pacific Northwest in, in the US and Canada, there was an extraordinary heat wave. Dozens of people in the Vancouver area of Western Canada have died in an unprecedented heat wave. Police say they've responded to almost 70 sudden deaths since Monday. Most of those who died were elderly. It has been extremely hot. Temperatures very challenging. A new all-time record of 49.5 degrees Celsius. In fact, it uh, you know, exceeded records by 5 degrees centigrade, which is just the sort of thing that makes climate scientists' jaws dropped onto their desks. You know, it was really off the scale. And actually, once they'd analysed that and compared how things might have looked if we hadn't heated the climate to the extent we had, they came to the conclusion that, that that event would have been impossible without climate change. So the footprint of global heating is, is really heavy and really clear. Are we just going to have to get used to more frequent, dramatic heat waves in the UK? Absolutely. In terms of the UK, in terms of Europe, in terms of the whole world, we are going to get more frequent and more intense heat waves. There's just no way around that, unfortunately. Every year we're putting more carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. That's like a blanket and uh, that traps heat, uh, and that heat obviously manifests itself in uh, hotter weather. And what it speaks to is that um, until we stop increasing the amount of uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, which we're hoping to do by 2050, we can only expect uh, worse and uh, you know, more harm, unfortunately. Damien, I've got to say that I have been enjoying the weather over the past week. You know, I like being out in my shorts. I like having a fab lolly being out with my shades on. But I wonder if, for you, 
it's surreal and maybe a bit concerning as somebody who's been reporting on the climate crisis for such a long time. How do you feel when we experience heat waves like this? I don't think um, people like me or other people interested in, in, in climate change should be telling people not to enjoy warm weather, go around with a frown on your face or stay indoors all day. I mean, you know, we'd, we'd get a reputation even worse than the one we have for being killjoys and merchants of doom. <laughs> But on the sort of immediate practical level, people just got to be sensible. You know, we are experiencing levels of heat we've never experienced before. And so we have to be careful, particularly for those vulnerable people, you know, the elderly, the young and, and people who have, might, might have other health conditions. It can be really serious. But I think also, whilst having a fab lolly, um, you do need to bear in mind that this is a really clear signal of what is happening around the world we are getting hotter and it's going to get worse and it will get to the point where actually you know these periods of hot weather aren't really much fun anymore and um, you know we need to bear that in mind so that we can uh, do everything we can encourage politicians to do everything they can to try and halt this climate crisis because uh, it's going to cause us uh, an enormous amount of, uh, of, of suffering if we don't do that in the future. Coming up How are our cities being adapted to cope with this warming climate? Oliver Wainwright, you're The Guardian's architecture critic and you travel the world looking at the built environment, which basically sounds like a dream job. Can you start off by explaining why do cities get so hot? It's a number of factors. I mean, it's known as the urban heat island effect. And I would say the main causes of that are the materials that cities are made of. So if you think about the kinds of hard, heavy, dark, absorbent materials like concrete and tarmac and asphalt that we gleefully coat all of our towns and cities with, they're all very kind of dark and absorbent. So the sun's rays are absorbed during the daytime and then re-radiated out at night. And it means that cities can actually be up to 10 degrees Celsius hotter than surrounding rural areas. And obviously you have the kind of heat loading of, of things, you know, buildings exhausting hot air through air conditioning, cars churning out hot air and fumes supermarkets with their refrigeration machines, exhausting hot air, you know, all of these combined uses add up. So cities essentially become gigantic heat sinks, often not helped by the physical form of, you know, tall buildings creating these kind of canyons that that help to, to trap the heat. And cities in the UK aren't designed to withstand hot, hot temperatures. So I guess because the infrastructure isn't geared to really hot weather, it means that people tend to congregate in those areas of the city where they can find a bit of a cool patch. For the first time, London, the mayor of London has released this uh, interactive map of cool spaces, which is actually a really helpful tool. It's a kind of heat map of the whole of the city. And it points out areas of parks and high density tree canopy coverage and areas near water, which are always much cooler and also air conditioned community spaces. And I mean, we shouldn't really be relying on on air conditioning, but times like this, when the weather is hitting 37, possibly 38 degrees Celsius, those are proving to be kind of essential safe havens. Being in London on a hot day is still nothing compared to many cities that are closer to the equator. 
What are some of the interesting examples you've seen in other countries of how cities are being adapted to cope with even hotter temperatures? I was in Dubai a few years ago and was taken to see this new kind of outdoor shopping street, which was presented as a real novelty. They were trialing a kind of pedestrian precinct for the first time. And I was amazed. It was remarkably cool. You know, walking along these outdoor streets, there was a kind of nice, refreshing breeze. So I asked the architects, you know, what kind of clever environmental solution they'd come up with to create this amazing environment. And he pointed to some jets between the shops and they were literally pumping out air conditioning straight into the street. (laughs) Enormous cost to the environment. You know, Qatar is air conditioning its stadiums for the World Cup this coming year. As uh, our climate is heating, you know, we really need to avoid having these kind of portable AC units and only making the climate crisis worse. My goodness, yeah, the amount of energy that it must take to be cooling an entire street in Dubai. And I mean, obviously, air conditioning units generate heat as well. So where is the heat going? Exactly. Well, you know, appropriately enough, you walk around the back of the block, kind of outside the privatised retail experience, and the street air is much hotter. There were the poor migrant workers who were kind of maintaining the the manicured lawns and flower beds around the side of this uh, kind of privatised retail enclave. But apart from that, it's very much an indoor city, you know, people shuttling from their air-conditioned SUVs into air-conditioned offices and and homes and malls. So cities are being divided by, you know, those that can afford the AC and and those who are suffering the excessive temperatures as a result of people using air conditioning. And it's only set to get worse. I think the energy spent on air conditioning globally is set to triple by 2050. And just as one example, I think the United States expends as much energy on air conditioning every year as the UK does in total, you know, on all of our energy needs. There was a study that found that AC, I think, is increasing cities' temperatures by up to five degrees in some places. So we're really making the problem so much worse by relying on aircon. So that's an interesting but not really a positive example. Have you been to other cities where the public spaces have been made resilient to heat without having to resort to pumping out all this air conditioning? I mean, if you think about the kind of archetypal Mediterranean town, you know, the kind of whitewashed Greek hill town, there's a reason that that countries like that have been painting their buildings light colours for years. And, you know, it, it reflects the sunlight rather than absorbing it. And it's something that's starting to catch on elsewhere. In, in New York, um, the city launched what they call the Cool Roofs campaign back in 2009. We are applying a reflective white coating on a black rooftop that's going to make the building cooler and in turn save the residents. Which is literally painting rooftops white. Then they realised that a, a white roof in New York City can be up to 23 degrees Celsius cooler than a typical black asphalt roof. They've done about 900,000 square metres so far, which has apparently saved 4,000 tonnes of carbon uh, from air conditioning cooling emissions. You know when gardens are built on the top of rooftops, does that have a cooling effect as well? It does, yeah. They're often called sedum rooftops. You know, it's, It looks like grass from a distance, but it's a kind of drought-resistant plant. And again, yeah, through evaporative cooling, that can have a a really good effect. Yeah, planting makes such a difference, doesn't it? I was in Mexico City recently and because it's so densely planted, it was quite refreshing and you could quite easily find cooling spots just under the dense planting. 
Planting trees is, is the most effective thing any city can do in, in combating climate change. Trees are the kind of one-stop shop wonder solution for so many things. They filter polluted air, they reduce flooding by improving drainage, they capture carbon from the atmosphere, and yeah, obviously have this cooling effect by providing shade and, and transpiration. There was a study in Manchester that found that street trees can actually reduce surface temperatures by an average of 12 degrees, and on over concrete surfaces, they can reduce those by up to 20 degrees in summer, you know, which is a huge amount. What are some of the other innovative approaches that architects are taking to adapting houses to deal with the heat? Well, it's interesting, the, the kind of growing passive house movement. So passive house is known as a fabric first approach to a sustainable building. So it's all about making your house as airtight as possible, maximising insulation. Essentially, it means in winter, you don't even need to switch the heating on. You know, often the heat that comes out of appliances, you know, your fridge and your TV and computer and, and humans living in the house is enough to keep it warm because the building is so heavily insulated and so airtight. A lot of those principles are now being translated to cope with overheating as well. So it all comes back to kind of very basic principles, primarily orientation, shading and natural ventilation. So I would say once you've got the kind of orientation right, so the north-south orientation, so it's easier to control the kind of heat gain in the home. Shading, I mean, we're seeing a lot more things like external louvers, whether it's peaks over the tops of windows, movable external shutters and blinds and awnings. They're the things that buildings used to have in England a long time ago. And even people kind of relearning how to use basic parts of buildings. So, you know, sash windows, which are ubiquitous across the country. They're specifically designed to work so you open the top of the window and the bottom, which creates a convection current so that cool air can come in through the bottom and hot air can be exhausted through the top. But you find so often the top sash is sealed shut so the window doesn't actually perform in the way that the Georgians and the Victorians you know, designed it to work. It's the natural laws of physics that, that hot air rises. I would say we're going to have to rely less on technical solutions than, again, just going back to those kind of vernacular building techniques that we've known for so long. Oliver, in lots of houses and flats, it can feel hotter inside than it does out. Is that something that's now being factored into building regulations? And if so, are there signs that developers are taking that seriously? It is um, gradually being factored in. It's also interesting to note that the kind of unintended consequences of some of these regulations. So all of our building regulations are about how to prevent heat loss. Most buildings are designed to maximise as much uh, what's called solar gain as possible in order to heat up the, the interiors. Streets and, and cities are designed in the same way. You know, the urban heat island is actually a very positive thing in winter because it, it keeps us warm and it prevents a lot of cold-related deaths at the moment, we're experiencing the exact opposite problem and, and we're not really equipped to cope for it. For the first time last year, the uh, building regulations in England actually included a new part on overheating. And you know, it goes against all of the principles that we've been kind of taught, you know, suddenly saying actually windows should be quite a lot smaller to prevent solar gain. Um, and we should be much more careful with orienting buildings north-south rather than east-west. Traditionally, architects are taught that, you know, east-west is the ultimate orientation to catch the morning and afternoon sun. 
But more recently, we've been finding that that actually leads to extreme overheating, especially in modern single aspect developments where a lot of small flats are are only facing in one way. We're going to have to confront pretty quickly that the UK's climate is getting warmer. (laughs) How quickly in terms of planning do changes need to be happening? Well, that's the problem. I mean, buildings and and the planning system lag so far behind. It takes years for things often to go through planning. It's incredibly depressing to see these new build towers going up, which you can tell are going to suffer all of these overheating effects that we've been talking about. You're probably going to see, you know, a couple of decades of adding solar louvers and external blinds and kind of rejigging windows and things like that to actually make buildings livable during these heat waves. One example, which I mean, is a bit facetious, but the famous walkie-talkie building in London. This is London's latest hotspot. In the middle of the city's bustling heart, a bizarre beam of light radiates onto the street. Powerful, dazzling and searingly hot. The With the concave south-facing glass facade which ended up channeling heat rays that were so strong they melted parts of a Jaguar that was parked on the street in front of it. And again, just fitting uh, solar louvers, you know, long, thin, horizontal aluminium slats to the facade of that building solved the problem. So I think we'll see a lot more kind of retrofitting measures like that as, as we go forward. So when you're walking around the city like London, do you just have your head in your hands the whole time, seeing all these details? <laughs> not always. I mean, there are some great examples, um, not not just in London. In fact, the one that I always point to is um, a social housing scheme in Norwich, which won the Sterling Prize a few years ago. That's the prize for the best building of the year in the country. And that scheme, it was just a series of fairly ordinary looking brick terraced houses, but again, fundamentally designed around these kind of passive environmental ideas and all of these principles that we've been talking about. So there are architects doing the right thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, not totally depressed every time I uh, leave the house. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. So how seriously is the government taking this as an issue? And what would a serious plan from them need to include, do you think? I mean, it's not taken seriously enough by any means. There are case-by-case examples of boroughs doing really good things. So Hackney, for example, in East London, has had a programme of planting 5,000 street trees over the last couple of years. Compare that to the Mayor of London's pledge to plant 7,000 across the entire city. You know, it's a drop in the ocean. He should be proposing 100,000, if not more. They're really, you know, doing these kind of token gestures. And it's the same with the the building regulations. I don't think they're going far enough when it comes to overheating. The cheapest fix could be to to have grants for lightening um, the rooftop. So you, you could easily tweak planning policy to have a clause whereby, you know, gigantic industrial sheds have to have reflective rooftops, which would have a, a big knock-on effect. Around the world... You must have seen some incredible innovation. If you could pick, where do you see the most hope for the future in terms of adapting cities to the increasing heat? There are actually some interesting things um, happening in in Doha and Sharjah and some of the Emirates where architects are rejecting the idea of glass towers and going back to vernacular models. There's a development in the downtown of Doha called the Heart of Doha, capital of Qatar, 
which, you know, rather than doing the usual high rise along the, the freeway, like the rest of the city, they looked at the kind of historic Medina form of, you know, courtyard houses, narrow streets and alleyways, creating huge amounts of shading on the street and having what are called mashrabia screens, so kind of uh, perforated mesh screens over the windows. Going back to principles which, you know, those countries used to use in, in building those kind of vernacular houses, but abandoned with the arrival of often um, English and American engineers. So it sounds like in lots of ways to cope with the future, we need to be looking to examples from the past. Exactly. I mean, we, we survived without air conditioning for, for centuries and, and we can do it again. We just have to unlearn reliance on technocratic solutions, you know, and actually the measures can be very simple and very basic and actually quite cheap to do from the beginning. Oliver, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was Oliver Wainwright, and before him, Damien Carrington. You can keep up with all their reporting at theguardian.com. Today's episode was produced by Cleetzia Sala and sound designed by Axel Cucutier. Our executive producers are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Cassin. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.